0: hello and welcome to made to measure the podcast of the journal of trading standards i'm paul evans in this week's episode we're talking to sylvia rook ctsi's lead officer for fair trading fair trading underpins more or less every aspect of trading standards work and as such it often overlaps with other areas of expertise within the profession in a nutshell fair trading enforcement is focused on ensuring consumer protection legislation is followed by businesses particularly with regard to product descriptions and pricing. Within that broad remit, there is plenty to discuss, and Sylvia gives her views on a whole range of trading standards issues, from the potential impact of Brexit on fair trading legislation to issues around online selling, as well as one of the more bizarre cases she has seen in her career. She also offers a bounty of useful advice to businesses, consumers and trading standards professionals on how they can best understand fair trading rules in a way that works to the benefit of everybody. Sylvia starts with a brief overview of her duties as a CTSI Lead Officer.
1: My name's Sylvia Rook. I'm Lead Officer for Fair Trading at the Chartered Trading Standards Institute. I've been in the role for over 10 years and the role involves advising members, uh, talking to the media, advising government and just anything that's needed in the fair trading field.
2: So Sylvia, how did you get into trading standards in the first place?
1: Well, I sort of got into trading Standards a little bit by accident. Um, I never thought of law when I was at school. I did sciences. I was, going, I was going to become an osteopath, so I went off to university to study physiology. But then things changed. I ended up in Warwickshire, and I had to look for some graduate employment somewhere. Uh, I, I saw the role of a trading standards trainee advertising Warwickshire trading standards, thought it sounded interesting. And so I went and um, applied for it, got the job, and I've been in the job since... 1986 going through the ranks from trainee upwards.
2: And why did you gravitate towards fair trading specifically? Do you have a particular interest in law?
1: I think it sort of happened really with with the sort of investigations I was doing. I was doing some very interesting um, investigations in relation to uh, the old Trade Descriptions Act which is no longer with us. And I had a very a very, fa- a very interesting prosecution against William Collins in relation to a misdescribed book the and na- the author who'd written the book And so I started getting more and more into the world of of fair trading. Uh, It went on from there because I started representing the Midlands region at various meetings. And I went to a meeting to discuss the unfair commercial practices directive and how it was going to be implemented into UK law. And so from there, I ended up uh, on a secondment to the Office of Fair Trading, training trading standards officers. And it was a sort of natural progression to become lead officer from there, really.
2: Do you think businesses tend to be properly aware of the law around fair trading? Do you encounter many businesses that deliberately flout the rules, or are most businesses you come across quite conscientious?
1: There's a bit of both really, and legislation's changed an awful lot since I started in the job. There's been a lot more European legislation, and quite often that's more complicated. And businesses can understand things like the Trade Descriptions Act, but they find it a lot more complicated when you have a piece of legislation with a really long title, like the Consumer Protection from Unfair Trading Regulations and things like that. But many businesses just get lost before they even get into the content of the legislation. I, I think there's always going to be businesses who want to uh, flout the law and want to take advantage of of the um, the vulnerable in society, but equally, there's a lot of businesses who want to comply and don't understand. And I think part of our role is to try and work out whether somebody is deliberately doing things wrong or whether advice and guidance will help them to comply. Small businesses who are setting up, they really value the advice. Trading standards is a wealth of advice and we don't charge for the service that we provide. I mean, I know some authorities have to, but a lot of advice is given for nothing. So we are absolutely marvellous tool for businesses. And so I think the frustration is that sometimes the legislators don't realise how complicated the law is and how difficult it is to comply. I mean, I've, I've had a lot of good businesses who will do what they're asked to. I've had businesses who have really not wanted to, and particularly, obviously, rogue traders on the doorstep who are out to, to rip people off anyway. Uh, they don't value trading standards in the slightest. They see it as an occupational hazard. And, and I've had some, some interesting experiences through my career.
2: Now, you mentioned the prevalence of European legislation when it comes to fair trading. Presumably, Brexit has the potential to have quite a big impact in this area.
1: Absolutely. And I think there's nobody quite knows what's going to happen. I think there's been a lot of things said about Europe and European legislation being bad, In fact the level of protection is so high for UK consumers and what we really hope is that when things do start to change the level of protection doesn't go down. There's an opportunity for the government to simplify some of the complex legislation Um, but what we don't want is huge changes because then there's going to be a lot more confusion and what you don't want is people to breach legislation because they don't know that it's changed again.
2: And moving from businesses to consumers... Do you think the general public tend to be sufficiently aware of their rights as they apply to fair trading? And further to that, do you think the role played by trading standards is appreciated by the public at large?
1: I think people don't don't have any idea what trading standards do. I mean, it's it's a title that doesn't really tell you very much. When we started back in the day, it was weights and measures inspectors. And, and we just went out and tests, tested scales and petrol pumps and things like that. But the breadth is now absolutely huge and people just have no idea. I go out and I do talks to consumer groups every so often and I talk about the breadth of work that we do, you know, going from the illegal importation of animals through to fuel leaks at petrol stations, through to things like the the cladding on our blocks of flats and things. And they're absolutely amazed that these are things are trading standards. And I think that's that's the case across the board that we do so much, but it's done quietly, it's done behind the scenes. And you'd only tend to hear about what we do when things have gone wrong, when you think when the resources have been cut so far that, for example, if we don't go out and do routine sampling, we're not going to find out there's a problem until the problems become huge. When you go back a few years and you think about the horsemeat scandal and and in the past trading stands were able to go out and we do regular sampling, but there isn't the funding anymore. And that means that things can get missed. And that's unfortunate. But I think it's only when people interact with us and they say how helpful trading standards is, what a useful thing we do. I think the challenge is to get that across both to the public, but also to government and and local government and government so they can provide the funding to allow us to do the job that we're doing.
2: Now, fair trading is obviously a fairly broad concept that must overlap with lots of other areas of trading standards. Does that make things easier or more difficult from a lead officer point of view?
1: That's an interesting question. You're right, it's a very broad concept. And there are also a lot of overlaps with our colleagues who, who deal with other areas, with other portfolios. I suppose in general terms, fair trading, you're sort of looking at the, role, the area of pricing and you're looking at descriptions of goods and services. But you can see immediately that something like um, the Consumer Protection from Unfair Trading Regulations. Um, they look at uh, descriptions, you say descriptions of cars. Well, we have a lead officer who deals with motor trade And if you're looking at um, consumer contracts regulations, when we're looking at doorstep selling, we've got lead officers who deal with civil law and with doorstep crime. So there is an overlap. So I think our expertise is that we can be, uh, I mean, I've done a lot of training on the consumer protection from unfair trading regulations and the consumer contracts regulations. So I know the law very well. So we work together. So I'm called in quite often if it's not a very specific area, so it doesn't comfortably fit with one of the other remits. And we, I get some most bizarre queries that the, the media are looking into a story and they want to know the trading standards view on something. Fortunately, we gen, the lead officers tend to agree with our interpretation of the law. So as long as we work together, it works well.
2: Are there any particularly bizarre queries that spring to mind?
1: they can be extraordinarily random. So they will be looking at a story about a description of a particular product. And they've, they've been looking into this product that will be being sold via the internet, um, generally products that come from overseas. And they want to know whether or not trading standards have had any complaints about the products. And if they have, what we're going to do about them. It's, it's, not, it's not easy to be specific in a, in a podcast such as this. But I mean, I've had some really... I mean, one of the weirdest ones, which is going back a bit, was a, was a newspaper asking me whether it was legal to describe items made from human skin as leather.
2: Really? And what was your verdict?
1: Well, I, well, I, I did quite a bit of research, actually. I talked to the British Leather Confederation. And because it's the skin of, of, a, of an animal, the skin of a mammal, um, it, it can be. But I'm not sure who'd actually want to buy... And they were, there was, is actually a company that sells belts and shoes and things made from human leather.
2: Not something that comes up every day then?
1: Absolutely not. And I think that's the weirdest thing. We we tend to get things where um, quite often it's something that you've never actually thought about. Um, we're very fortunate as lead officers, we have access to a lot of information and I've got contacts over at the Competition and Markets Authority and over at Bayes. So we can try to get a consistent viewpoint to try and, and give um, advice and guidance.
2: Now, you mentioned pricing earlier. What aspects of pricing are you particularly focused on things like sales and non-existent reductions
1: well that that's the sort of thing quite quite often it, it's misleading practices so they will be comparing their prices to a recommended retail price that may not be a genuine recommended retail price or they're claiming that there's a sale when it's not a sale and the legislation is not very specific it doesn't say this is an offence it gives it gives areas it talks about misleading as to uh, the price or the manner in which the price is calculated, for example. So the Charter Trading Standards Institute has issued guidance to try and help businesses, but it, it's quite a complicated area. And the other thing is whether or not it's a priority for local authorities to look at pricing when we have so many other areas that we have to deal with.
2: Well, staying with that topic, cuts have had a hugely detrimental effect on trading standards over the past decade or so. What's been your experience of that?
1: I think the challenges now are that because there are fewer resources, it means that we don't do the job in the way that we used to. When I started back in the 80s, we were out of the office almost every day doing visits. We were going around visiting local retailers, giving them advice, making routine sampling and things like that. And we can't do that anymore. So that means that we're getting less intelligence and it means that we may not be aware of issues until they become very big issues, and I think that's a big frustration. The other thing that, w- when I started, we used to interact a lot more with the public. We would deal with the complaints directly. Now complaints are dealt with via the Citizens Advice Consumer Helpline, so we don't we don't get that first hand information. And we do still talk to complainants, but it's usually when something has escalated and it's a more serious matter than it was when we started. So it's very difficult. Again, going back to what I said before, you don't know what you've got till it's gone. And the work of trading standards across the country is amazing, but you don't tend to hear about it. And the fact that there are some authorities now that only have one or two members of staff, how can you possibly protect the consumers in an area when the resources are cut that much?
2: Apart from the obvious solution of, of more funding, are there any ways you can see of mitigating some of the more drastic impacts of the cuts?
1: One of the things I think is exceptionally important is training. Um, I've been a, a, tr- a national trainer for quite a long time. And if you understand the legislation, then you can enforce it better. And unfortunately, that's one of those areas that's being cut. And I think putting a lot more in, um, resources both into training, uh, trading standards office, but also the public providing information, It's it's very frustrating for me in a way that the side of giving advice to consumers has gone to citizens' advice. Um, so we don't have that, op- that opportunity to provide as much advice and guidance. I mean, I, I wish that there was a lot more um, trading standards input into schools, into the national curriculum, because if you know your rights from a young age, then you're less likely to have problems as you get older. And, and I'm, I never cease to be amazed that people have the misconceptions about what their rights are. Even now, even with all the uh, consumer programs and things like that, people still don't know what their rights are.
2: In terms of attracting more people, specifically younger people, to the profession, presumably cuts have had an impact there as well.
1: It's a challenge. It's a challenge because uh, a lot of authorities are not recruiting because they're cutting staff because of the lack of resources. And that means the number of people being recruited is lower. That means if you want to do training courses, there are fewer people who want to go on those courses, which makes it much more expensive to run. I mean, it's it's a big issue. When I joined... Uh, it was a, a very large profession. And it was a profession. It was something that you had a passion for and it was a way of life, whereas now it's much more of a job and people come in and they do a job. And quite often in local authorities, you're multitasking. So you may be doing trading standards, but you'll do other sort of regulation as well. And this is a small part of it. Um, and I think that is difficult. It's a fascinating subject. It's um, trading standards law is is really really interesting. I love it. But how you get people into it now, and there used to be consumer protection degrees. They've gone as well. So it's much more difficult. Uh, it's just it's a different world. Um, but I would still encourage anybody if they can get a job in trading standards to do so because I mean it's one of those jobs where you are actually helping the public and you're helping businesses, and that's marvellous.
2: What have been the major changes in approach to fair trading enforcement over the past few years? And to what extent would you say they're the result of cuts versus more general changes in business practice?
1: I think it's an interesting area in terms of priorities, because in the past, when we talked about pricing and we would investigate pricing complaints But now you have to say, how serious is it? How is it going to protect the uh, consumers in your local area if you're going to go out and look at a misleading price? And that means that you're much more targeted. We now very much more target our resources for investigations to the rogue traders, uh, to the areas where there's much more deliberate fraudulent activity. And that means a lot of things that would have been dealt with in the past may well no longer be dealt with, and and that's a shame. It has to happen because we can't deal with everything. But consumers get very frustrated when they say, "Are you not doing anything about it?" And what we've done is we've advised the business. We've talked to them about how to comply with the law, but the resort, the amount it will cost you to take it through the courts is so high that it's not in the public interest to pay to spend that money on a case. And then you add into that now the fact that we, the growth of technology and an awful lot of issues are now internet-based, and unfortunately, a lot of the the traders who are uh, the best at conning consumers, which is a terrible thing to say, but, you know, they're, they're the ones who have the, the most ability to mislead, are not based in the UK. They're not based in the EU either. They're quite often based in the Far East. And that makes it very hard for investigation. You know, I, I, if it's a trader in my local area, I can go and visit them. I can walk through the door or ne- if necessary, I can break through the door to go in and if I had the police with me. You know. But, but if, if you're looking at something that's in the Far East, it's much, much more difficult. I, I think the effect on consumers is the same, whether it's in their home, whether it's in their shop and whether it's uh, um, online. It just happens that the online ones tend to get a lot more money generally.
2: The emergence of people selling goods over social media must have added new layers of complication when it comes to fair trading enforcement, would you say?
1: I think it's quite interesting now because anybody can start selling um, online. So you can be, you can have a day job, but you can import a large quantity of something from the Far East and then sell it via uh, by your social media site, via a marketplace. And it is your responsibility, and it'll be even greater now once we've left the European Union, that anybody who's importing something into the UK to sell is going to have to make sure that it's correctly described, that it's safe, that they have all the relevant paperwork. If not, I mean, they, they run the risk of, of items getting seized as they come into one of the ports anyway, because if it doesn't comply with UK legislation, it could can, it can be prohibited from being further supplied. But you, you've also got the, the issues with uh, what they're doing with the items when they're being sold. Uh, I, I've, I've recently been looking into somebody who is selling, who's importing items from the Far East and selling them on Facebook. In the future, he won't be able to sell these items because they don't comply with UK law.
2: Now, how much does your expertise in, in fair trading bleed into your personal life? Does it come in handy when you're buying things? Do you have any key pieces of advice?
1: Oh, absolutely! It's a, a way of life. It absolutely is. I'm I'm sort of a bit of a nightmare customer because I know my rights, I know how to complain, and 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 that's quite it's quite disconcerting because I don't get angry, I don't shout, always pleasant, always polite, very assertive, and therefore I get good results. Uh, friends and family uh, sometimes get a bit embarrassed because I can't let it let, let it lie. Um, I can't tell you how many free drinks and meals and things I've had as a result of problems that I've identified. I mean, I don't try, I don't ask for things. I just want them to know what's wrong. I mean, I'm one of my one of my big bugbears is short measure in a bar. Uh, there's a line on the side of a glass for a reason, and if my my wine is below that line, I will stand there and wait for them to top it up. I'm Not going to pay for air in a glass. So I think the important thing is you need to know your rights so that you're not you're not sort of vaguely hoping that you're right and not to be rude to the person that's actually you're dealing with, because generally it's not their fault. It's a matter of speaking to the manager, the owner. Sometimes face-to-face will work. In a restaurant, it works very well. In a bar, it works very well. But other things, you need to put things in writing. Be persistent and and don't give up. Um, But it is quite interesting. I I mean, I I can't stop myself looking at small print and labels and things like that. And this is a way of life. I've been in the job too long, so I'll, I'll always be... Um, wanting to make sure because it's not just me it's the person who comes after me the person who's also going to be buying this product when I've gone away and I want to make it right for everybody.
2: Presumably a lot of the time in these situations it's down to an oversight on the part of a member of staff rather than a deliberate attempt to defraud the consumer.
1: Oh yeah generally it's because they don't know or because they're trying to multitask and deal with a lot of things and we let's face it none of us is perfect Um, We're always going to have times when you've not done what you should have done because you ran out of time or something. Um, My my issues in restaurants tend to be when you've ordered something and they've run out of one of the ingredients, so they'll put something else in there. And all they need to do is come along to the customer and say, we've run out of X, do you mind having something else? And then you have the choice. But to have a meal put in front of you and look at it and think that's not what I ordered... It's quite often the manager doesn't even know because somebody in the kitchens made a decision or a waiter or a waitress has made a decision, and it's not usually deliberate. Um, and that's why, as long as you're nice to them, they're nice back. It's not. It's not supposed to be a battleground. Everybody's doing their best, and you just we talk about trading standards having cuts. Other businesses are struggling too, and, and that's one of the things we have to make sure as trading standards so We never forget, you know, if, if we're telling somebody to, to change what they're doing, it's going to cost them money. And if they don't have that money, then that might put them out of business. So we have to think very, very carefully how we deal with any breaches, because our aim is not to put people out of business. Our aim is to make them thrive.
2: And what key pieces of advice would you share with others in trading standards who come up against a case that involves fair trading? Are there any useful resources or tips you can share?
1: As a trainer... I know that legislation is often really, really difficult to understand. It's written by lawyers. It's written by politicians. It's certainly not written by the people who do the job. But there's a lot of information available out there to enforcers. Uh, I think the, one of the challenges not, is not to trust the internet because there's a lot of out-of-date and misleading information on the internet. People put things on. People don't often take it off. So, I mean, I've looked on there uh, on, on information about doorstep selling and there's information about the legislation before the legislation before the legislation you know there's there's really out-of-date stuff on there the lead officer network is amazing the the resources that are available to members of the charter trading standards institute and and to to government and to the media is is we're there to help, so we've got a lot of information and a lot of contacts, so we can usually help with the legal interpretation side. But we've also got a lot of information on the business companion. The Chartered Trading Standards Institute has this resource library, which gives simplified versions. It gives guidance, that leaflets that will help businesses. Um, it will also help trading standards officers who are, who are struggling to understand. So, that that they're really useful resources. Public have the Citizens Advice website that gives them. Um, standard letters it helps them write. so there there is information there, and I think the the challenge is to know where to look. as trading standards, we have um online resource places where people um have discussions. We've got the knowledge hub. um but the problem with that is it's people putting their views, and one of the things I've always said is sometimes that the people who talk the loudest don't necessarily know what they're talking about and and so you've always got to be a little bit careful as to just because somebody says something doesn't mean to say it's right. I mean, even with lead officers, we, we will give our best interpretation. As I say, I've got contacts um, in government, and things like that, so I can try and get a view, a broader view. But at the end of the day, it's going to be the courts, perhaps, who will have to make the interpretation of the law.
2: Well, finally, Sylvia, just to wrap things up, what would you think a world without fair trading enforcement would look like?
1: That is one of those very, very difficult questions. I think everybody needs rules. Everybody needs to know what they can and can't do. As soon as you take away the rules, then it becomes a bit of a free-for-all. And you need to know that if you're buying something that's made of leather, it's made of leather, it's not made of plastic. If somebody says the price was £50 and you're getting a deal at £10, you want to know that that really is a deal. And And I think if the legislation went then the protection for society would go and people would have no idea what they're getting. And then you'd suddenly realise, I think legislation may be complicated, but it's all there for a reason. It's there to protect consumers, but it's also there to protect businesses as well. So everybody knows what they can and can't do. I think trading standards is a bit at risk at the moment because of the resource implications, because of the, the, the local authority cutbacks. And I think As I think I said before, you only know what you've got when it's gone, you know, when it's gone and you suddenly realise all the things that we do. Uh, And the amount that um, most people pay in their council tax towards trading standards is less than a cup of coffee a year. And I think if people realise that, we're a little bit the poor relation. We fight fight for money when the social services and education and, and health need money as well. But on the other hand, everything we do, it it, it relates to that. You know, the health of society is down to the fact that people are complying with the rules and and safety of society. If goods are not safe, then they'll be going to the hospitals and needing treatment. So we are an integral part of the health and well-being of society and I just hope everybody actually gets to appreciate that.
0: And that's it for another episode. Thanks to Sylvia Rook for talking to us and thank you for listening. We'll be back again soon with more from the world of trading standards. If you have any ideas or suggestions for the podcast or you just want to get in touch, send us an email to madetomeasure at jtsmag.uk. Don't forget to like and subscribe on iTunes or wherever you're listening to us. Until next time, goodbye.